This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Vacation alert from the three-row Jeep Grand Cherokee L. Mama and Papa want to go hiking. Los abuelos want to relax at the beach. And the kids want to go to the amusement park. With seating for up to seven, you and your loved ones can enjoy all these adventures and more. Jeep, there's only one. Visit Jeep.com to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist recommended facial moisturizer brand. Now, why do I think health matters so much? I think it matters so much for a very simple reason, that health probably is the single most unifying shared value. And that we can disagree on political um, political perspectives on a whole range of issues. But I have yet to meet people who do not agree with the statement, we'd like to be as healthy as possible, and we would like our children to be as healthy as possible. So when you see it that way, health is a is a has the potential to be a real unifying force. And as a result, it strikes me as entirely reasonable to say that health should inform the decisions we make about sectors that influence it. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, and this week we talk to Sandro Galea, Dean of the School of Public Health at Boston University. His book, called Well, takes a deep look at the differences between health and medicine and looks at how everything from the environment, taxation, education, and even luck plays a part in the overall health of the nation. Speaking before the coronavirus pandemic, he explained to our editorial assistant Amy Barrett the surprising factors that influence public health, which countries are doing it well, and why he felt he had to write this book. Well, I I often say that uh, it took me 20 years to write this book. That's not exactly accurate, but it it really is a, a compilation of my thoughts of over 20 years in academic public health. It really was an effort to capture what I think it is that generates health in populations and to really move the conversation forward beyond a misconception that I think 
dominates how we think about health that we're wherein we conflate health and medicine. Right. And so what are the differences between the two terms? Well, I think medicine or healthcare is a very particular aspect of health. When when you or, you or, you or I are sick, we want to see a doctor and uh, we would like to return back to health and that is all fine and good. But medicine is one very particular aspect that we lean on when we are sick. Ideally, we do not want to be sick to begin with. Ideally, we'd like to stay healthy. So we as a society would do well to think about health and to think about what are the forces that generate health. And the book is about that. The book is about everything else that generates health. And and those everything else, that, that basket of everything else is much, much bigger than medicine itself because it is about the world around us. What generates health is about where you live, about the income you have, about whether you were exposed to violence, about where you went to primary school, about how you grew up and whether or not there were conditions for you to walk and exercise, about the food you eat, whether it is calorie dense, nutrient poor, whether it is healthy food, about whether or not you have a livable wage, about the conditions that allow you to age healthy. These are all the forces that generate health. And really, as the book subtitle says, that is what we should be talking about when we talk about health. And who is it that's being failed by the current attitudes towards health? I think we all are. I think we are shortchanging ourselves in uh, because of our current attitudes about health. I think that is um, equally relevant in the United States as it is in the, in the UK. And I, I think that the two countries are good examples because both countries have had a doubling down and greater investment in medicine and healthcare uh, to the detriment of investment in the other forces around us. So I actually think we collectively have far, our health is far less good than it can be. And to use the American example, the United States has had a downturn in life expectancy year on year, every year for the past three years. And that has not happened. We have not had a three-year year-on-year drop in life expectancy since the 1918 flu pandemic 100 years ago. That is actually quite extraordinary when you think about it, that uh, the United States right now is going through such a downturn in its health. And that is, of course, in a country, the United States, that spends far, far more on health per capita than any other country in the world. Sometimes I worry that the United Kingdom follows the American example on things like this far more than it should when, uh, in fact, America is perhaps the example that one should not follow when it comes to health. <laughs> Do you know what's kind of causing this this three-year decline? Well, there are a number of forces that are contributing to the three-year decline. The, uh, the, the, main, the main factors from a morbidity point of view and mortality point of view are increases in uh, injuries that lead to um, suicide. And a lot of those are due to guns, to the increase in... Uh, deaths from neurodegenerative disorders like um, Alzheimer's, dementia, and deaths related to downstream consequences of opioid use. Those are the three big causes of death at the end stage cause of death. But of course, the argument is that those are simple downstream consequences of much larger social economic issues. And that is ultimately the these larger social and economic issues, what we as a society have not paid attention to. And what we are seeing now, this decline in life expectancy, is a reflection of longer term processes. So are there other countries we should maybe be looking to as an example of of better wellness, better health? 
Well, we, 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 we just need to look at the um, health indicators in other high-income countries. And um, many Western European countries have far better health indicators than does the U.S., than does the U.K. And uh, the, the, the thread that unites them all is greater attention paid to investment in the social and economic resources that create better and healthier worlds. And different countries do that differently and they focus on different aspects. But to my mind, what unites them all is a recognition, perhaps implicit, perhaps these countries have not explicitly wrapped their brain around it, but they act like they have, that generating a healthier population is inextricable from creating a healthier world around them. And so there are examples that, that you mentioned in the book um, of kind of current attitudes that, that set up uh, f for failure, set up people um, for failure in terms of their own health. I wonder, is there anything that, that we should be doing now to prevent um, the future unhealthy population that, that we're kind of establishing with our current society and our current attitudes? Yes, I make the point in the book that our health today, your health and my health today is much more a product of our life course of how we have lived and our experiences that we have had than of anything we do today. And, and we often make this mistake where particularly in a clinical context, a physician sees a patient and she has a particular illness and the physician thinks about the illness and the patient today. But in fact, that illness is a product of what she was doing, whether she was smoking, whether she was drinking, what food she was eating 10 years before, what her adolescence was like, what her childhood was like, and really what her in utero conditions were like. So uh, this argues for looking back and saying, how is it that we set up people for success or failure for a lifetime trajectory of good health or of poor health? How is it that they are educated early in life? What are the environments they're exposed to? How much do they exercise early in life? What food do they eat early in life? And that really sets us on this, on these paths. And these paths diverge over time for us to have in middle age and then later in life, health haves and health have nots. So does this mean um, changing the actions of, of, say, practicing doctors? I'm thinking about, you know, here the NHS has already pushed past its limits. Um, does this mean that the practicing doc doctors will need to do more for their patients? Well, I, I'm often asked this about doctors and my general feeling about doctors, and I am one, is that uh, doctor's job is to restore us to health when we are sick. And uh, what I want from my doctor is that uh, they are excellent at doing that because when I'm sick, I would like to get back to being healthy. So in some respects, I think this is an issue that's bigger than doctors. I think insofar as doctors can lend their voices to this issue, that becomes important because doctors have an important role to play in changing the public conversation. But ultimately, this is not something that can be done in the clinic. This requires a broader political recognition of the essentiality of creating the pillars that generate health. And that requires that we as citizens demand it. That requires that we as citizens demand health and say it's not good enough that we're investing in more medicines. We actually also need to invest in parks and opportunities for healthy eating because without that, we are just going to be leaning more and more on the expense of medicines without ever achieving the kind of health that we have the potential to achieve. So 
what changes, you know, ground level changes do we need to make to promote a better and healthier society? I think we need to make sure that those of us who are in positions of authority, be it in the public sector or in the private sector, who can, who, who are generating these structures that within which we live, recognize that health is a consequence of a whole range of decisions that we seldom think of as linked to health. That decisions about transportation, decisions about housing, decisions about income opportunities, decisions about gender equity, these all influence our health. And we need, we need to make sure that when we make these decisions at a societal level in the private sector or public sector, we, we take health into account. Now, why do I think health matters so much? I think it matters so much for a very simple reason that health probably is the single most unifying shared value and that we can disagree on political, um, political perspectives on a whole range of issues. But I have yet to meet people who do not agree with the statement, we'd like to be as healthy as possible and we'd like our children to be as healthy as possible. So when you see it that way, health is a, is a, has the potential to be a real unifying force. And as a result, it strikes me as entirely reasonable to say that health should inform the decisions we make about sectors that influence it. Absolutely. Um, and in your book, you list sort of 20 different things that, that do impact our health from, from money and politics to humility, values. Um, when researching and writing the book, did you come across any factors that, that really shocked you? I think where I ended up, which was perhaps different than where I thought I was going to end up, is how deeply I came to feel that our values and how we see the world informs what we do. I, I, I think uh, I may have had a more analytical, dispassionate take on it when I started, meaning that if only we invest more in housing and early childhood education and violence prevention, will generate health. But then I came to feel that issues, as you said, like kindness and love versus hate and humility are important elements of us getting to the right place. And the reason for that is because I came to realize the more I researched and thought about it, that it is those values that create the conditions within which the decisions are made. And absent those values, absent a compassion for the state of humankind, absent a uh, humility of understanding that the forces around us are complex and we have a responsibility to do the best we can by the people we are responsible for, absent a desire to promote love rather than hate in our speech and in our action, we will not make decisions that have these important downstream consequences for health. So I think if there was one surprise, it was that, is that I came to feel that these perhaps more abstract concepts, philosophically abstract concepts like compassion and humility are equally important to the very pragmatic nuts and bolts decision about where we site our highways and decisions we make about shared public transportation, decisions that are made about parks as public goods, decisions that are made about excellent early childhood education. Because those decisions flow from a set of values that prize creating a better world and improving the human condition above all. And how has your own personal journey, how has that shaped your view and shaped your practice? 
Yeah, I suppose I um, I suppose it has made me more contemplative. It has uh, it has made me recognize that one of the roles, perhaps the most important role, that any of us with um, any leadership role in our universe, and I actually think most of us have leadership roles in our various domains, have a uh, responsibility to be thoughtful about what that means, have a responsibility to invest that role with the right humility that says, the words I use, the actions I take can influence how decisions are made around me. And those decisions are then going to influence our collective well-being. And that's, um, that's a real responsibility. And it strikes me that if we all embrace that responsibility, it would be a better world for all. It's quite a kind of crushing weight of a responsibility there, don't you think? <laughs> it is, but I think uh, you bear it as do I. Mm. And how do the elements of our childhood, you mentioned even in utero, um, how do those elements influence our health as an adult and then in the wider population? Yeah, I, I mean, I may, maybe I'll answer that by, um, by by way of illustration. It's a story which I um, which I tell in the book, and um, it's a story of Blind Willie Johnson, who was a blues player from um, Texas. He's an American blues player. He was born poor in um, in Texas at the turn of the 20th century, and he lost his vision when he was seven in a domestic violence incident. Hence his hence his moniker, Blind Willie Johnson, and. Um, when he was young, he had no money and uh, he got married, lived in a small house and that house burned down. And But him and his wife, didn't, they didn't have money, so they kept living in the burnt out house. And then when he was in his 40s, he developed malaria and his wife took him to hospital and he was turned away from hospital and he died from his malaria. And the question I ask is, well, what killed Blind Willie Johnson? And obviously, medically, what killed him was malaria. But when I tell a story like that, the notion is very clear that it wasn't just malaria that killed him, right? It was poor housing. It was racism. It was domestic violence. It was his poor, his, his, his poor fortune, his, his misfortune to be born black and poor in Texas at the turn of the 20th century. So th th that's why in the book there is a chapter on luck, something we, we don't talk about in, uh, when we talk about our health. We, we have a very deterministic view of our health, which says something like, if you can just change your behavior, you're going to be fine. And we forget this overwhelming role of luck, of the good fortune, of the circumstances of our birth and the conditions of our birth. And we don't like thinking about that because it makes us uneasy. Uh, but it is entirely true and it is important because once we recognize how much your and my good fortune today to be sitting here talking to each other is determined by luck that is, that is undeserved, it makes us uneasy because it, it, it makes us feel anxious about, well, what can I do to pay it back? And I think what we can do to pay it back is to live compassionately and to realize that health is a public good and that we owe it to each other to give back to the world better conditions that can advance those who do not have the same level of luck. Is it luck or, or is it privilege? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a privilege to be lucky. <laughs> and um, so I think the two tie in very much together. I think what we, what we tend to call privilege in today's conversation is an accumulation of lucky incidents that then become a set of privileges. And there's a, a chapter called Choice. 
Um, and mm. choice in health can be sort of misinterpreted. It, it can even be used against people. You read comments that, that say people are choosing to be obese, choosing to be unhealthy. Is that really the case? Yeah, the, the point I make is that that is far less the case than we think it is. And uh, the, um, the example I use is the example of um, motor vehicle accidents, motor vehicle deaths, that uh, in, in all Western high-income countries, motor vehicle deaths have dropped dramatically in the past 100 years. But by hundredfolds, they've dropped dramatically. And the question is, is that because drivers have chosen to become better drivers? And the answer is absolutely not. Drivers are drivers. We're all human and imperfect at uh, navigating complex vehicles like cars. The reason that uh, motor vehicle fatality has dropped is because of safer roads, shoulders on the side of the road, airbags, seatbelts, shatterproof glass, laws that prevent uh, drinking and driving. And that that simple example illustrates that we tend to overprivilege choice. We tend to think that if one chooses to be healthy, that one can be healthy and we forget that actually what it really takes to make us healthy is to create conditions around us that channel us in a healthy direction. Because we, we as humans, we're sort of terrible at making healthy choices. We, we, we just are. And, you know, there's been a lot written about sort of behavioral economic science of nudging people. And even that and uh, careful analysis doesn't look anywhere near as promising as, uh, as the, um, let's say, the, the, the earlier discussion round that suggested uh, we we need a structural world around us that gets us down a particular path. Now, when, when I speak like that, a criticism of it is saying, well, you're asking for a nanny state for government to control what you do. And my argument is, is very simple, that, that those criticisms are misguided because we have we have structures that are imposed on how we live and what we choose by the public sector, by government and by the private sector all the time. There are all sorts of things that you cannot buy easily that are determined by regulations and frankly determined by what private sector actors are willing to produce and to sell you. So I, I don't think that this requires anything different. I think it simply requires that those private and public sector decisions that shape the world we live are made with health in mind. So do you anticipate um, that, that this book could be used to to educate those that, that are in that kind of you know mm. level of, of policy making or I hope so. And have you seen anything in the last sort of year that, that has made you optimistic for the future? Are there changes yeah. happening? Yeah, I'm I'm actually very optimistic for the future. I I uh, I've been involved in the past uh, few years in any number of conversations with colleagues in the private sector who that they talk about a their recognition that what's typically called social determinants of health, which is a technical term that really reflects everything that we've been talking about in this uh, podcast, and and that corporations have a role in engaging with that and trying to figure out ways to generate context that generates health. And private uh, private sector wasn't talking about this five years ago. They weren't talking about this ten years ago. So I think the world is changing. Perhaps the best compliment I've received about the book is. When I have readers who stumble upon it and read it for for whatever reason, they say, well, everything you're saying here is obvious. And um, I like that. I think they're right. It is obvious. And uh, my job is to is to elevate this and make it clear to all of us. So much of the the book and the examples in it are, are focused on the U.S. So what, what can the rest of the world learn from what's going on in the U.S.? 
Well, yeah, yeah, I focus on the U.S. simply because that's where I live and uh, it's a context with which I feel both comfortable and also I feel like it's perhaps prudent to always uh, reflect back on one's environment and not to have the hubris to talk about other environments. Um, but I think the um, these lessons apply everywhere. I think they are universal lessons and they apply to uh, all over the world. Let me, let me use one, uh, um, one other analogy which I talk about in the book, which perhaps resonates with... Uh, an English audience, which is the, the analogy of the football team. By football, I mean the actual football played in, uh, in uh, mostly in Europe, um, uh, which in the U.S. Um, we call soccer. And, and the analogy is as follows: that in uh, football you have 11 players and uh, a goalie, and of course the goalkeeper can use his arms and legs and his whole body to stop the ball from entering the net. And somebody who doesn't know the game of football will say, "Well, as long as you have the best possible goalkeeper, you're always going to win." But people who know the game recognize that. A good goalkeeper is never enough. What you need is a team to push the ball forward at all times. And that's the perfect analogy for health. The goalkeeper is medicine. If you're, the ball is going to get close to the net, if you're going to get sick, you want a good goalkeeper. You want a good doctor to restore you to health. But really what it takes to keep us healthy is a winning team, is the other 10 players. Those 10 players are where we live, where we go to school, the families in which we're raised, our being protected from violence, our making sure that we actually have good nurturing environments, us having access to healthy foods. Those are the other 10 players. And it's that same ratio, that 10 to 1 ratio, that I think should inform how we think about health. That health is 10 times as much determined by the world around us as it is determined by medicine that keeps us from getting sick. Wow. And because a lot of what we do is like you say, treating us when we are sick rather than focusing on kind of preventing people getting unwell. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. And and, and it, it, of course, is problematic in terms of how we spend our money. When we spend our money on, uh, when, when the political discussion circles around spending one's money on health, it almost always is about spending one's money on medicine. And those are not the same thing. And in fact, if we spend on medicine to the detriment of spending on the forces that generate health, we are going to be creating exactly the kind of world that we have now where our health in high income countries is receding. And that is that is a real shame. There's a line in the book that really shocked me. Um, you say that the influence of the conditions of, of where we live can suggest our zip code or here our postcode is a better predictor of our health than is our genetic code. How does where we live determine our health so dramatically? I think where we live determines everything about our health. It determines whether you have access to grocery stores with healthy food. It determines whether or not there are parks where you're likely to uh, play and exercise and run. It determines the quality of schools you go to, which then go on to determining your opportunity set throughout your life. It, also schools that teach you right from wrong health behavior. It determines the friends you have and their behaviors influence your behavior. It determines how likely you are to get a job that is stable, keeps you stably employed, and then opens up opportunities for resources that keeps you healthy. So. Where you live is everything about how you're going to live and how you're going to live is then what, what becomes imprinted in you as your health. So is it that, you know, you can't, once you're an adult, you can't then backtrack, you can't rectify the mistakes or, or your unlucky, mis, you know, your misfortune when you were a child? Yes, it's, it's much harder. It's much harder to do so. And uh, 
in some respects, I suppose my my argument is an argument for better health for our children. But that's, that's probably how it should be, isn't it? Now, that doesn't mean that adults listening to this should despair um, because, A, there are things that we can do and agitate for and ask for in the world around us to help our health. But it also means that I think we as adults, as with any generation, have a responsibility, there's that word again, to invest in creating a world a world that's better for those who come after us. And perhaps in part, that's what this book tries to do. It's a play on an investment in a future, better world. And the next generation are already uh, more aware than the last, aren't they? I mean, you, you see them. They out. are. Oh, oh, they are. They really are. And uh, my, my children are much more aware of these issues than uh, than I was when I was their age. And uh, you asked me if I'm optimistic and the answer is yes, I am. And I also prefer to be optimistic because it's much better than the alternative. Mm. But obviously now, uh, you know, us and younger generations are, are um, able to see what's going on a lot more through social media. There's, you know, there's, there's more knowledge out there f- for children to access. And I wonder how, how does media and pop culture influence our health? I think it influences what we talk about, influences what we talk about when we talk about health. And uh, as a result, this is, this is sort of why I am um, happy to talk to you in, in context of that uh, you are part of what's shaping the conversation that people have and what's shaping the conversation around health. And uh, I, uh, I want to make sure that these ideas are part of a broader conversation that is heard by adults, which then trickles down to or up to however you want to look at it to children and young adults and their conversation um, because the conversation 20 years from now will be very different and uh, I think it'll be a more positive conversation where a number of these issues will have moved forward. Mm. And you mentioned that, that, you know, right at the beginning you said this book kind of has has been building over the last 20 years. What, what's your career been like over the last 20 years? Well, I'm, I'm trained initially as a doctor and uh, I um, then I, I went back to school to get a master's and a doctorate in uh, public health. And uh, so for the last 20 years, I have been uh, teaching writing in uh, public health. A lot of my work has been around mental health and around the forces to generate mental health. And um, I have had a succession of different academic and leadership positions. So I feel like I've gone from being prim- doing primary care medicine, where one very much feels on a day-to-day basis the forces that inform the health of one's patients to thinking about this at a more academic level and trying to do the science that teases apart the forces that these forces that generate health, articulating them, providing the evidence and now translating that evidence to a broader audience. Do you ever worry sometimes that um, scientific research can be used in perhaps a negative way that it by not being communicated accurately or, or confidently, um, it can actually misinform the public. Yeah, I, I worry about that. I, I worry about a lot of things. I worry <laughs> about that too. <laughs> I think we all probably should. Um, um, but I, um, I would like to, uh, I would like to believe at the end of the day that um, that most people have good intentions, and at the end of the day, most people, when they understand what the right thing to do is, will actually do the right thing, and. Uh, in part, this uh, book is an effort towards nudging us towards what the right thing to do is around health. Hmm. 
Um, how can the good of the good health of one person affect the life of another? Um, you mentioned in the book that it's in all of our interests to, you know, help other populations achieve a higher status of health. But why is it so important? Well, I think the obvious example of that would be something like um, infectious diseases, where um, if health systems crumble in West Africa. You have transmission of Ebola to high-income countries where Ebola is not, not non-native. Um, that's something that was, but has really gripped headlines. And a little bit more uh, prosaic example: if um, if you do, if you choose not to vaccinate your children, it uh, increases the likelihood that measles will spread, and that uh, that my children may get measles, even if my children are are uh, immunized. And separate and apart from infectious diseases, we know from the science very well that my likelihood of being overweight or obese is influenced by whether or not my friends are likely to be overweight or obese. Another example is that we tend to think of car accidents and the risks of children of dying in car accidents and as, as though it's only a passenger in a car problem. But in fact, a substantial proportion of children who are killed by cars every year have had nothing to do with the, with, the, with the car and they're simply struck by other people driving poorly. So... Uh, our health is intertwined, whether we like it or not. Unless you can, you know, sort of wrap wrap yourself in a in a bubble and protect yourself from other people, your health and my health are intertwined, whether we like it or not. And so, on an individual level, um, what what can a person do to to be healthier themselves, but also to contribute to the health of the the wider population? I think um, if every person listening to this podcast understood this message, and acted in terms of their engagement with private sector, public sector, to insist on the conditions that generate health. I think we will slowly change the conversation on health and we'll slowly change what we need to talk about when we talk about health. And that's, um, I think that will be a positive for all of us. That was Sandro Galea, whose book, Well, What We Need to Talk About When We Talk About Health, is out now. You can read a full transcript of this interview on sciencefocus.com. The new issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now, but we understand that you might not be able to pick up a copy at the moment, so we have a couple of options for you. You can either get the next three issues delivered to your door, with 15% knocked off the cover price for one simple payment, or alternatively, set up a direct debit and get the next six issues for 9 99 head over to sciencefocus.com forward slash podcast offer for details. Otherwise, look out for new episodes of the Science Focus podcast, listen to some old ones, rate, review and stay safe. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.